be back with you. Um, a little explanation as to what happened, so you just, I can just kind of clear it up. Um, I'll do this maybe in the first sermon I do as well. In the beginning two days, I think, of January, I think it was the second, I had bought a, uh, it was before that last big snow that we had, I had bought a snowblower, and my dad was with me, and my Will was with me, and we had a lot of ice that had been built up, and I wasn't able to get any salt down on it yet, but we had purchased a new snowblower. Long story short, I've never had this happen, but my wife's car alarm went off in her truck, and I told my dad, and I told Will, and I told Deb, watch out for that ice, I don't have any salt down, so we are all going around it. Well, I got kind of a little annoyed with the, the car alarm, you know, just, you know, the... So I go to stand out on the deck, and I go to shut it off. And, of course, I, at that moment, I forgot about the ice. And my foot went out right away. And then um, what happened is I went down the steps, and my right leg got caught behind me. And it tore my quadricep from my knee. And uh, um, I wanted to finish up real quick before I start prayer. Let you know I've pro- I plan on finishing this issue regarding the New Apostolic Reformation, the falsehoods of the new apostolic reformation this week and next. And then from there, I'd like to start back into Proverbs and kind of go chapter by chapter. Remember, there's 31 chapters. And get through Proverbs and then do an overview of Daniel. The study in the book of Daniel would not be verse by verse, but what we would do is kind of go section by section and hit the main exegetical issues regarding eschatology, regarding the promises of God, Um, regarding God's sovereignty, those types of things. And then what I would like to do, I'm just giving you kind of the, in my mind, stay in the Old Testament and do verse by verse through the book of Zechariah. So that's kind of where I'm aiming for. So anyway, with that, um, let's get back to where we had left off. I don't know if you recall, but I'd left off with this slide. And the claim that I was getting into was that the New Apostolic Reformation, and remember, these are people who are claiming modern-day apostolic authority, they would claim that the church has to take over the state, that we have to have dominion over all aspects of our culture, including the state. And what I want you to realize is that the Bible shows us that there's a distinction between the state and the church, that the church's role, the church members comprised of individuals who've repented and believed in Jesus Christ. Bob has been laying that out for us. And so the role of the church is to proclaim the gospel, to make converts, to populate the kingdom that's to come. The role of the state is designed by God to restrain evil, to protect human beings made in the image of God. And where we see the institution of government really for the first time is after the flood in Genesis 9-6. If you're a note taker, just jot down Genesis 9-6. It's probably a verse many of you are familiar with. Sorry, I'm just adjusting my cast here. Um, Genesis 9-6 is where the Lord says, If a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. So the idea there is that if someone murders a human being made in the image of God, government was instituted by God to remove that individual from the earth, to restrain evil. Why? Because human beings made in the image of God deserve protection. Now, if someone were to say to you, well, wait a minute, Eric, that's Old Covenant. Genesis 9-6 is something that we are not necessarily bound to anymore. Well, I would reply in two ways. Number one, it is actually part of the Noahic Covenant. But two, under the New Covenant, 
we see the same doctrine taught by the Apostle Paul. For example, in Romans 13, 4, he says that the government does not bear the sword in vain. Meaning what? Well, of course, meaning they can use the sword to restrain evil. So that's the role of the government. Now, many of the wars that happened in Europe, whether it was the 30-year war, and you can look back throughout, quote-unquote, church history, and you can see that many wars occurred because the church took over the state and tried to wield the sword when, in fact, it has no business in doing so. And so I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will. Let's begin looking at Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. And I want to talk about this famous passage where, of course, some of you will recognize it, where Jesus tells the Pharisees to render the things to Caesars that are Caesars and the things to God that are God. But I want you to, as you're turning there, remember the context. Why was Jesus in this dispute? Well, because the leadership of Israel wanted to get Jesus in trouble. Remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are very upset with Jesus. And so they try to put him in a quandary or what we sometimes call in debate a dilemma. Now, in a dilemma, when you're debating an opponent, you're putting them into a position where they only have two bad alternatives. For example, an atheist is in the dilemma if they deny the existence of God. They end up having to deny either the second law of thermodynamics or the law of non-contradiction. Why? Because if they claim that the universe did not exist and at the same time existed to put itself into existence, they violated the law of non-contradiction. That's an absurdity. How can it not exist and exist at the same time to put itself into existence? That's absurd. Well, the only other option is that it's eternal. The problem with the universe being eternal is the second law of thermodynamics, that all energy is tending towards decay, meaning you can't have an infinite lifespan of a universe with a finite supply of usable energy. Well, in like fashion, these leaders in Israel are trying to put Jesus in a dilemma where they ask Jesus, is it okay to pay a poll tax to Caesar? If Jesus says, yes, it is okay to pay the poll tax, that is going to incense the Jews who are naturally patriotic and resent the poll tax. And so Jesus will make a bunch of enemies of the Jews. But if Jesus says, no, it's not right to pay the poll tax, he's going to be in a heap of trouble with the Romans. And so no matter which way Jesus answers, the question is designed to get him in trouble with somebody. So what Jesus does is he cuts the Gordian knot, he grabs the bull by the horns, and he answers this way. He says, they said to him, remember he asked them, whose picture is on the coin? Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God things that are God's. Now, what's very interesting about that answer is Jesus doesn't say one way or the other as to the morality of paying the poll tax. What he's really affirming here is that Caesar has his role. Caesar has his place. Why? Because God has ordained it. That's what's implied. When we look, for example, at the book of Daniel, 
we see very clearly that God is the one who orchestrates all of the kingdoms. The kingdoms rise and fall according to the dictates of God. He is the one who decrees which nations come about. And so the point is, Caesar is doing the very work that God has ordained to restrain evil and to be on the throne. Not that everything that Caesar does is moral, not that everything any government does is moral, but simply that God is sovereign and on the throne. And so the point is, government has its role. And that's what we see in Romans 13, 1 through 2, where it says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So stop there. Notice in red, there's no authority except from God. That's implied in Jesus' answer. Why does Caesar have what he has? Because God has set him there. Not that Caesar is a godly man, not that Caesar is a believer, but Caesar's role is simply to restrain evil. That's the design of the government. Now, notice in verse 2, Paul goes on to say in Romans 13, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Notice that anyone who would reject the governing authorities is in rebellion against God. Now, there are some caveats because in Scripture we do see examples where the government is disobeyed, and in fact it's considered a righteous act. Let me give you the general principle that I think we see in Scripture that we can prove exegetically, and that is that we must obey the governing authorities until they command us to do something God forbids or they forbid us from doing something God commands. Okay, now let me lay that principle out um, and give some biblical evidence of that. Turn your Bibles to Acts 5.29. Acts 5.29. And the reason I want you to turn there is I want these to be kind of in your head. Um, I don't know if you ever have that in your mind where you kind of have certain passages and you can actually see the number when these issues come up. But this is a passage which shows you that sometimes we have to disobey the governing authorities because, in fact, they're commanding us to do or, excuse me, forbidding us from doing something that God commands. Now, remember in Acts 5, the disciples are being prohibited by the governing authorities, by the Sanhedrin, from preaching in Christ's name. Do they obey that? No. Why? Because they're under a higher authority, namely Jesus Christ, to preach the gospel. They must. It's a divine necessity. And so the forbidding of them preaching in Christ's name is something that they cannot obey. And so that's why notice in Acts 5.29, it says, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So there you have a clear example where the apostles will not heed the instructions of those who were in governance over them. Why? Because they were being forbidden from doing something God commands. What about an example of where we are commanded by the government to do something that God forbids. I think a great example of that is found in Exodus chapter 1. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus 1, 16 through 17. If you remember that, that is where you have the Pharaoh commanding the Hebrew midwives to murder the children as they come out of the womb. 
And what's very interesting is the women who deny that and they don't abide by it, their names are forever in the Bible. Was it Hua and Pua? Must have been sisters, right? I forget that someone can probably see it. I don't have the full text here. But they will not murder these babies as they come out of the womb. And notice what it says in Exodus 1, 16 through 17. It says, and he said, when you are helping, this is the Pharaoh, the Hebrew women, to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. There they were commanded to do something the government, or excuse me, they, they didn't do what the government had commanded them to do because it would have been murder. They would not do what God had forbid them to do. So again, that's the issue that I see regarding the government. We have to be those who obey unless they forbid us from doing something God commands or command us to do something that God forbids. Now, one other issue that I raised last time is this term subjection. I'll just give a little review of that. The term subjection there, hupatasso, means to literally subordinate yourself. And notice it's to the exousia, the, the authority. And one thing I pointed out is that in America, we are blessed in the sense that we are under the authority, first and foremost, to a constitution. That is the highest authority in our land. And so there are times, because that is the highest law of the land, that I do think it's okay to say, look, I will not heed perhaps a governing official who is violating the Constitution because the Constitution is the law, not necessarily the governing official. Let me give you an example of this. Um, how many ever heard of the Battle of Athens in 1946? Well, I'm talking about Athens, Tennessee. In 1946, one year after World War II, there was a wayward sheriff who had stolen an election. And it was just obvious to all that he had done so by stuffing the ballot box. Well, when he had done that, he was messing with a bunch of men who had just come back from World War II. They caught him stealing the election. They had the evidence. And so they proceeded in grabbing M1 rifles from the local armory and they made sure that there was a new sheriff in town. So let me ask you, in that question, with that scenario, who was the one that was really in subjection to the governing authorities? Was it the sheriff who stuffed the ballot box, or was it the ones who overthrew him? And what I would suggest to you, because again, we're a land governed by rules rather than by men, it would be the men who overthrew him. And so that's something to think about in our own minds to say, look, the ultimate law and authority in the United States is the Constitution. Yes, Rich? What's happened to us today where people aren't willing to do that and stand up for the ballot box and stand up for the integrity of elections anymore? How can we just roll over? Why, did, why were they so intent on having fair elections back in those days and not anymore? And why are we so quick to be like, oh, well... Whatever, so Joe Biden won. Let him have it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm obviously troubled by that as well. And again, what I would say is, 
if we do resist authority to establish the rule of law, it's not to build the kingdom of God here and now. It's merely to restrain evil and return to the rule of law. Let me give you an example, another one. Let's say you had a police officer. In fact, this has happened in the past where a police officer goes into a crowded restaurant and starts shooting the place up. Are we going to say, well, he's the governing authority? And after all, doesn't Romans 13 say, be in subjection to the governing authority? Well, no. I mean, it, it does say that, but the authority is the rule of law. It is illegal for a police officer to shoot, and therefore he would have to be restrained at that point. And so these examples, what I would say is that we have to appeal and use the law just as we see, for example, the Apostle Paul. Um, I'll give you an example of that in just a moment, but I'll, I'll call on Eric. But I am troubled by it as well, Rich. Um, what I would temper everyone in saying is that, yes, I think we have to use the law. Uh, that is the law that's in the United States for the benefit of society. And we don't transgress that. Um, but at the same time, realize that we're never going to build the kingdom of God. Our job as Christians is not trying to make the United States the new Israel, but all I want is simply people to adhere to the law. And that means me, and it means you, and it means everyone else. And if they will not adhere to it, it is the citizen's role to restrain that. That's what the Second Amendment's about. The Second Amendment isn't about deer hunting. It doesn't say for the purpose of a well-regulated group of hunters, but it's militia. My dad, when he went to Vietnam, he swore an oath to not uphold and defend everything said by a governing official, but the Constitution against all aggressors, foreign and domestic. There is no higher authority in our land than the Constitution. The Apostle Paul appeared, appealed to a higher law in Acts 22. In fact, just real quick, Eric, before I get to you, turn your Bibles to Acts 22.25. Acts 22.25. Here they are going to scourge Paul, the apostle. And what does he do? He appeals to the civil law. And he asks the question, can you do that to a Roman citizen? It was a benefit in being a Roman citizen. That's one thing that I see dwindling away today. There's not much benefit in being a citizen of the United States. You get a heavy tax burden and uh, a lot of other payments you must pay. But uh, those who come in up from the south, they pay nothing and get a lot of benefits, don't they? Acts 22.25, it says, But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Now notice in the very next verse, it says, When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do for this man is a Roman? In other words, the centurion realized he would be in a heap of trouble if he would violate the Roman law and scourge a man. Um, I would give another example, we can talk about that later, where Nicodemus says, aren't you going to first hear from the man before we launch allegations against him? He's appealing to the law in Israel. So that's my point, is we can follow suit, I think, as Christians, and appeal to the law to say, wait a minute, when we have a high official say that the Second Amendment is not absolute, that's been around since 1791, the question is, well, why is their decree absolute? 
What ultimately is the authority that you and I are in subjection to? I'm in subjection to the Second Amendment, and so are they. And anyone who differs is lawless. That's the way we ought to see it. Not that I'm trying to build the kingdom of God, nope. But they're going to adhere to the law, and I'm going to adhere to the law. Everyone, that's how I think we should see this as Christians. Yes, Eric. Uh, actually, that's perfect what you brought up, too, because uh, to Rich's point, now, we live in Wright County. Yes. And our uh, sheriff out there, now, the sheriff is the highest elected constitutional officer in any county. And there's a gal going around the country right now, I can't remember her name, who is actually Chris Ann Hall, is it? Yeah. And she's, uh, I went to a, a meeting that she had, there was thousands of people there. It was in Wright County. But our sheriff has said, as the top constitutional officer, he will never enforce, he never enforced a ma- any kind of a mask mandate. Yes. Okay? And he will never enforce any kind of a restriction on uh, firearms yes. ownership, and he, no matter what. I mean, he, the Democrats are going nuts right now. Sure, but, sure. Uh, but so that's one thing to remember, that that sheriff is a key person. And then the other thing, well, and like Paul, Paul appealed to the higher authority. Right. We can do that, too. Uh, then the final thing really is that we really need, I think, to have a balance. We need to have the full counsel of God and then remember that we're citizens in a free republic and have responsibilities. Somehow Amen. we will find the balance Amen. with all of that, I think. Well said, Eric. I think that's very well said. Yes, we as Christians aren't trying to build the kingdom. That's going to come through Christ's work alone when he returns a second time. But at the same time, we have, we have duty as citizens in this world. We still have to pay taxes, and we still have to restrain evil at times. And it's not always pleasant. It's probably the least pleasant thing that we'd ever have to do. But nonetheless, that is something that we may have to do. Yes, Dan. Welcome back, by the way. Oh, thank I, I, you. I good to see you. I was not here when, I, when, you, when you started, so what, it's good to have you back. Um, I was just going to ask you about, so when you get to the point where you see all sorts of people breaking the law, we've seen it over the years, especially it seems like the higher-ups that have either lied under oath and all these different things that we've seen. Yes. And I'm not just trying to play, play politics here. It, it can go on either side of, of the aisle type thing. Yes. That's where it gets frustrating for the citizens, I think, is when there's no repercussions to any of the, any of the injustice in the law-breaking that we do see. Yeah. So that what do you do then? I mean, that, that's where you, you know, you appeal to the law, but there's no remedy. And uh, so that's where the frustration starts to build. You know, as a business owner, too, you just... Yes, absolutely. uh, Yeah, so... Yeah, and again, um, ultimately, that's why the Second Amendment was there. Um, If you read... Anyone ever read the Heller decision? Uh, It was penned by Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia penned the Heller decision, which is a... Heller was a retired police officer, and he simply wanted to own a firearm in the confines of Washington, D.C., have it in his home. Well, they wouldn't allow him. The, the mayor, they had a law that was in place where he could not own a firearm. So it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And what was decided in a very good exegesis of the Second Amendment is the Second Amendment contains two clauses. There's a prefatory clause and the operative clause. The prefatory clause is simply why is it there? 
Well, it's for the purpose of a well-regulated militia. The term regulated, what Scalia did masterfully, was to show that that does not mean regulated by the government, but in the day it meant properly functioning. The Philadelphia Eagles and the Chiefs, the Kansas City Chiefs, had well-regulated front lines, in other words, offensive lines, meaning they functioned properly. I mean, I couldn't believe how good their offensive lines were compared to the Vikings. They functioned properly, right? I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, this is a whole new level of football. In the same way, for a properly functioning militia, okay, again, not deer hunters, the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. The right of the people occurs five other times in the Bill of Rights, and it's always a reference to an individual. So Scalia asked, then why is it not a reference to the individual in the Second Amendment? So what was the purpose of it? A properly functioning militia, which is designed to restrain lawlessness, and it's a right for the individual. And that cannot even be infringed. And so the point is, that is the highest law in our land. It is a bill of rights. It's not subject to the whims of the government because this is a right that we have that goes all the way back to 1791. So my point in saying that is those who violate that, Dan, I would say those are the ones who are needing to be restrained. And the Second Amendment is actually what provides for that restraint, sadly. So that's, that's what's designed for it. Um, sadly, we don't want that to occur, but that's what it's designed for. So, yeah. I was just going to say, it seems like if, if you thought that way and you decided to gather other like-minded people, that's when the government comes down on you hard because they're, they're going to, you think of some of those, what they've always told us were wackos out in Idaho and some of those uh, militia groups that maybe had a grievance against the government. Well, they quickly took those people down and, you know, Absolutely. whether it was just or not, who knows? I don't right. trust my government now, and I, I haven't for a long time, Right. and it's getting worse by the day. So, so when you try to gather as a militia or someone that, that wants to, to enforce the, the, the proper law, they're going to, yeah, they're going to wrap. I mean, they have such power, there's no way we can, we can succumb to you know, what the, what the government has as far as firepower. So yes, that's a problem. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's right. And so, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Um, I'm just, what I'm just laying out is the principles. And the principles are there for the restraint of evil within our law. And that's what the, the law says. So, yeah. I'll, I'll just say this briefly because this is really good news. It answers Dan's question. In Wright County, uh, okay, there's a, what they call a basic political organization unit. And that's the way all, all over the country you have these little, you know, at the county level or the precinct level. And what happened there, I was not involved in it. I kind of Barb and I kind of got acquainted with some of these people, but they went over. They they took over the Republican Party BPOU. They they took over the basic Republican Party uh, unit, and uh, what they want to do is to try to actually have it become a good grassroots uh, type of a political thing. So it's kind of like we have two hats when we live in a constitutional republic. We're Christians. And, and, and our business is, you know, preaching Christ. But as citizens, we can do sometimes more, sometimes less. But that's the only hope, I think, for our country, is that these uh, getting citizens who actually want to 
uh, group together. And it's not that hard to do, by the way. Right. So I didn't mean to go on about that, but yeah, there, so there is that way that we can do it, and that's what's going to have you. to happen, I think. Yeah, Eric, well said. So this is what I want to lay out. The, the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, what they're saying is that we as Christians take over the government to Christianize the planet. I'm saying that that is false. That is not our role. But at the same time, we as citizens who belong to a nation are those who have obligations to that nation. And part of the obligations we see in the Constitution. And so we have obligations. When my grandpa, he was a tank driver in Patton's Third Army, he had to go, he was in the Battle of the Bulge, he was in the Battle of Normandy. Well, he did that not to build the kingdom of God, but to restrain Nazis. And sometimes the aggressors to the Constitution aren't foreign, they're domestic. That's why the oath is all aggressors, foreign and domestic. And so my point is, that's just the way it is. And we as Christians who have a citizenship in heaven are all the, or should be all the more willing to say, hey, I'm going to be a better citizen here. And I'll just leave it to you in understanding what the rule of law demands in our country to, to what, as to what that means. Um, I'm not going to give any specifics, but I think we know the general principles. And so my, my thing is I wanted you to see the distinction between the New Apostolic Reformation movement, which says we take over the government to Christianize America. What I'm saying is no, we have obligations as citizens of America to simply restrain people and to ensure that they're living up to the law. Uh, and, and in some sense, that's a, a role for all Americans. One passage I want you to jot down, um, you don't have to turn to it, but in John seven fifty one, here's Nicodemus. Nicodemus may have become a believer in Christ. I think it's uh, probably likely where he is standing up for Christ, he says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and notice, knows what he is doing, does it? So what Nicodemus was appealing, just like Paul did, was to the law of the land, saying you can violate that law. That's a law of the land. You have to first hear from him. So again, I think that that's how we have to act as Christians, simply holding people to the law that we're bound to. Again, you're going to be hard-pressed to go to a law that transgresses 1791 in the Bill of Rights. When someone says, well, that's, the Bill of Rights aren't absolute, um, look at the politicians who are saying that and ask the question, then why are their decrees absolute? Um, so anyway, that's one thing I wanted to bring up. I think it's a good challenge to think about. Okay, now let's move on to another problem with the New Apostolic Reformation is the making of decrees that God alone makes. What they are bound to do ultimately when they gather together is they end up making decrees, declaring the future into being in their opinion. And what I want to show you is that God alone is the one who makes decrees, determining the boundaries of nations, determining what will occur in the future. Now, there was a three-day readathon at the U.S. Capitol. This is in August of 2020, or 2022, rather. And there, we had men like Dutch Sheets make decrees. Listen to what he says. Dutch Sheets says, I nearly passed out. He said, you can believe I read the word of the Lord with authority, making prophetic declaration over the government of this nation with absolute faith that revival is coming. Now, notice he's making a prophetic declaration that, in fact, revival is coming. 
Now, in a prophetic declaration, what the New Apostolic Reformation move, means by that is two things. Number one, that this will occur because they have spoken it into being. But number two, a prediction of what will happen, which would make them a modern-day apostle slash prophet. Now, the problem with that is, of course, we don't have modern apostles and prophets. We'll talk about that later. But second, the one who makes things happen through decrees is not any man but God alone. Now, remember, in theology, we distinguish, distinguish between two different types of decrees. What we have in one sense is what's called the moral decree of God. In the moral will of God or decree, God shows us through his word what we must do and what we must not do. We must not murder. We must not commit adultery. Um, what must we do? We must come to faith in Christ. That's the first work. John six twenty nine. The first work that you must do is believe in the one that the Father has sent. But everything else, you have to obey the Lord. So we have the moral decree of God, but we also have something called the decreative will of God. Now, what's the difference between the moral will of God and the decreative will of God? Well, human beings can resist and do resist the moral will of God. Um, how many times do you see people saying, well, I know that murder is wrong, but they still do it. Uh, they know stealing is wrong, but they still do it. Read your newspaper, right? You see it all around you. But when it comes to the decreative will of God, no one can ultimately resist that. What God decrees to come about will necessarily come about. And so what Sheets and the New Apostolic Reformation are really claiming is this right that God alone has in his decreative will to make things necessarily come about. Now, let me um, read, have you turn your Bibles actually to Isaiah 10, 23. I want to show you a bunch of decrees that the Lord has made. Isaiah 10, 23. And as you're turning there, I know we're only reading a little snidbit, but let me remind you, Isaiah 10, 23, as you're turning there, this is actually within the Emmanuel prophecy that begins in Isaiah 7 where Isaiah gave a sign to Ahaz, but not just Ahaz, the whole house of David forevermore, that one day there would be a virgin birth that would prove to the house of David, Emmanuel, that God is with us. Despite human depravity within Israel, the fallen tree of David would one day be restored. And that's why when you get to Isaiah 9-6, it talks about who this Messiah would be who would restore the fallen tree of David. He was going to be a son that would be born unto us who's called Mighty God. El Gabor, Mighty God, he's Wonderful Counselor. And upon him, remember, there will be a, no end of his government or peace. You see that in Isaiah 9.6. Well, then in Isaiah 10, the Lord lays out that he's going to destroy using the Assyrians and using the nations as instruments of his wrath. He was going to use those nations to destroy all but the remnant of Israel. And only a remnant would be restored. But notice here what it says in Isaiah 10, 23. It says, for a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord, of, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. So who decreed this destruction that would come at the hands of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, uh, later at the hands of the Romans? Well, it was God. God is the one who decrees what will take place. It's not Dutch sheets. It's not any other human being. It's God alone. Yes? 
Luann, back in the back. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that was redundant, wasn't it? I just have to ask this because of what's going on at Ashbury. So, you know, like now with Dutch Sheets, he'll be able to come and hijack. I mean, you know, if that's a good thing and actually a work of the Lord, whatever, I, I'm not making a statement on that. But, you know, yeah. he'll be able to come and say, see, look at, we declared this in 2022, and now look at, we've got revival in Ashbury, Kentucky. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny, and um, we're coming to Matthew 7, and when I um, do the sermon in Matthew 7, I'll talk a little bit about that, because remember in Matthew 7, Jesus says, wide is the path that leads to destruction, many enter in through it, and narrow is the path that leads to salvation, and few find it. And I see that really as the grid to see all of history, to say when the gospel goes out, the vast majority will reject it, but there will always be a remnant that God has called his elect that will believe and be brought to, that will be brought to salvation. The reason I say that is the idea of revival implies death. Something that's dead needs to be revived. Well, it can't ultimately appeal, or that idea of revival really can't apply to Christians because Christians, as soon as you become spiritually alive, you're never declared dead again. Uh, Bob has often shown us in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, the domain transfer, that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Now, is the conception of Christianity that we go back and forth between the kingdom. Think of two spheres. You're either in the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of Satan. Does the Bible reveal that we as Christians alternate between, we go, well, for a while I was in Christ's kingdom, I was spiritually alive, but then I went spiritually dead again, I went back to Satan. No. We are forever preserved by the power of Christ to be within the kingdom of Christ. Now, the proof of that is found in John 17, 15, where Jesus in his high priestly prayer prays. Remember, he says, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, meaning during the church age. One day he will take us out of the world in the rapture, but that's the end of the church age. He's referring to the, the church age. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. The implication is now, but keep them from the evil one. The term keep, tereo, means to guard. From is ek, meaning on the outside. By the way, the same verb and preposition are used in Revelation 3.10, where the promise is, because you've kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who are dwelling upon the earth. So it means preservation on the outside. So certainly you and I are never going to go back once we've been delivered to the kingdom of Christ from the kingdom of darkness, we are never going to go back. So the revival certainly can't be the reviving of Christians who were dead because Christians, by definition, never die again, as it were, spiritually. We're always in the kingdom of Christ. The second category of revival would be, well, like in Israel, they had a revival where people turned back to the covenant the problem with that category is the United States does not have a covenant with God. There was never one day in the entire history of the world that God, the Holy One of Israel, made a covenant with the people of the United States. He did make one with Israel. So what would it mean to have a revival of the United States turning back to the covenant? Which covenant? Uh, the, the Old Testament? The Mosaic Covenant? Should we keep Shemitah? Should we make our farmers 
make the land remain fallow every seven years? Do we have to have cities of refuge? Should we be, we be able to kill rebellious teenagers? Are, are you with me? I mean, we have to, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's tempting. <laughs> Stri- <laughs> Strike that from the record. I don't want my son to hear that one. Yeah, uh, yeah so are, are you with me? So the point is, a revival on a national level to some covenant is irrational. The third category of people that you may need a revival for, bringing, death, bringing from death to life, would be unbelievers. But that's what we call conversion. It's not revival. It's conversion. That when people have the gospel preached to them, if they are regenerated by the Spirit, they will come to faith in Christ necessarily. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And so those are the three categories I want you to think about. I'm sorry, I've got so many hands. Uh, Back in the back, um, Bill? And then we'll come to Brian. And I'm sorry, I probably missed somebody. But does that help, um, Luann? Okay. Yeah, they just kind of came into my mind. um, So the first would be believers. The second would be the, the nation. And the third would be the unbeliever. Those are kind of the categories. So I kind of put revival in each of those categories to say, well, what does that look like? And it can't mean Christians are going from death to life. Because that already happened at conversion. So it can't apply to you. It can't apply to our nation because we're not bound to a covenant. And when it comes to believers or unbelievers, excuse me, well, that's what they need conversion for. (laughs) So my point is, let's look at anything that happens at a so-called revival through the lens of Scripture and ask, what's the gospel that they are confessing? If they are confessing the person and work of Christ, we know what? It's work of the Spirit. If the person and work of Christ is not being confessed, it's not a work of the Spirit. So, oh, I'm sorry. You're getting close. Sorry about that. I'm close of bound. I'm too excited. Yeah. <laughs> it's been so long. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry, Bill. Go ahead. Thank you, Bob. Oh, I'm sorry, Paul. Okay, real quickly. Uh, when in Romans it says that God gives us over to our sin. Yes. Um, I'm thinking that this does not mean that we're no longer believers. We are believers, and we will have eternal life, but he gives us over to get a little hiney slap because we're, we're doing sinning business, you know? Yeah, what, hold on what, what, real quick. That's from Romans 1, Yeah. and that's talking about the unregenerate. So it's the unregenerate. So those would be people who are unbelievers who are given over to idolatry. Does that make sense? So take the category and shift in your mind and say, okay, Paul in Romans 1 isn't talking about believers, he's talking about unbelievers. And because of their idolatry, God gives them over so that they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator is forever praised. Does that make sense? But what happens is at, when you become a believer, that's reverse. That's where you leave idolatry. This is what repentance is. And you start for the first time, the moment you believe in Christ, you start worshiping the creator rather than the creation. Okay, so Romans 1 is about the unregenerate. So, yeah, very good. I'm glad you asked that, Paul. I'm sorry. And then um, we'll get Brian and then we'll get Bill. Hey, real quick, this, uh, back to this uh, Dutch Sheets here. Yeah. I've heard him say that in the 2020 election, Trump was going to win. That was his word from God. Yeah. Okay. It's a false then prophet. that didn't happen. Right. Then his next message from God was just wait for the electoral college stuff to flow in. That was wrong. Sure. Then 
his next word from God was that it's all going to work out through the courts when it's appealed to the Supreme Court. That didn't work out. Then he got another word from God in the midterms that we were taking over everything. That didn't work out. Then Kerry Lake was going to win. That was another one. So this guy's like yes. got a low, low batting average. Okay? <laughs> so anybody that would listen to this guy, That's right. you're, you know, I don't know if he's got anything right. Maybe he knew, maybe he got a word from God that he was going to have brown sugar on his oatmeal. I don't know. <laughs> right. Amen. Brian, well said. Two tests in Deuteronomy. Remember Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. The test of a true prophet, number one, is if they say something that does not come about, they are not a true prophet. They were to be stoned. So if you're under the Mosaic Covenant, there'd be a lot of incentive not to be a false prophet, right? Maybe he was stoned. Yeah, <laughs> in a, met- a different sense. You're equivocating on stone, yes. I, I think the real point here, the point is that it, nobody cares. He can right. be wrong, 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 and people exactly. keep, they keep, 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 keep hitching their uh, horse right. to the wagon. Remember the second test of the, the prophet was even if they said something that came about, if they taught a different doctrine, and brought people away from Yahweh, they were to be rejected. You see these in Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, the test of a true prophet, yes. So I'm sorry, then uh, Bill, Bill, oh, you're good? Okay, very good. Um, yeah, Bob. Uh, Brian had called and asked, we, I kind of gave the same answer, so yeah. either we're both wrong or both right. Right. <laughs> but, um, I want to, there's another thing I think that comes into play. Yes. Because when I was a brand new Christian, in 1971, they had a revival at North Central Bible College. And 50 years later, I, I get the, because I graduated, I had the magazine. They were talking about that. I had pictures of people I knew there. Uh, what happens is a revival of the institutional church. Yes. That would be a fourth category. Mm, mm-hmm. So, but that's based on the idea that the institutional church is God's idea. So you have this institution that buys brick and mortar, makes seminaries, has extra biblical authorities, whether it's bishops or archbishops or district superintendents, and you get this massive thing going. And then after a few generations, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren are running it, and they're liberal. And they have no... Uh, whatever it was, it's not, or something similar to that. Or maybe there's a distinctive doctrine that they promoted Hmm. because of something that happened in history, and they want to get that back. Sure. So I think functionally what happens, because your categories are exactly right. Yeah. The only verse about revival is in Acts, and it's about Israel in the future, and it happens in the millennium. Yeah, amen. Okay, so... We want to get the institution revived, but that uh, can temporarily happen, but it ends up because of who's running it, the descendants of Christians yes. who aren't, there's no grandchildren. Did you know that? Yeah. I know you know that. <laughs> oh, we got to get everybody excited. So this institution gets the money flowing back in, gets people excited about it. And I'm not commenting on anything going on now, but that's kind of what happened at the one I was at. Yeah. And there was an all for all week and we had there were in the Pentecostals people would fall on the floor and a guy had come in 
And what they were able to do was build a brand new chapel out of the money that was generated. Yes. The students started giving away whatever money they had, and then they brought that testimony around. I'm not implying everybody had bad motives. Right, Because in their exactly. mind, yep. the new chapel was a good thing. I was one of the, my class who graduated was the first one to graduate from the new chapel. Yeah. But they went back to the districts of the Assemblies of God and said, look what these poor students did. And that motivated people to give lots of money, and they raised enough money to get a chapel they'd been wanting for yes. a long, long time. So what was revived was the institution. Right, right. And then what happened after that was Jim and Tammy Baker. Yeah. Um, and uh, everything kind of changed because they got notoriety on TV. Yes. So I would just say I need prayer to be able to finish my thoughts on the idea of defining the church biblically. Yes. And I really don't believe you can validate various denominational institutions as being the church as defined in the Bible. Amen. It's a very simple thesis, but that's that's what I Yeah, well on. said. Yes, Norm. Yeah, um, what would we call it when in, there have been times in the history of England and United States when many people have really turned and accepted Christ like when Edwards was preaching and that, what, what label would you put on that? Not yeah, I just like to use conversion. Just conversion. You might say many people were converted. That's what I like to use because the, the idea of revival, again, as Bob pointed out, another category. And again, to me, the category is always, think about the unregenerate. Okay. The unregenerate can be in the quote-unquote world or they can be the institutional church. I'm thinking about category three. At the end, at the end of the day, the unregenerate need conversion. And it doesn't matter if they're the president. It doesn't matter if they're a senator. It doesn't matter if they're the provost of a university or they're a pastor or a priest or the pope or whatever they are. If they have not trusted in Jesus Christ, they are part of the unregenerate and they need conversion. And so that's what we see is that conversion occurs. And again, when we look at any group that's claiming mass conversions are occurring, we simply will know them by their fruit. If Christ is being confessed, his person and his work, then we say, yes, that's a work of the Spirit. Yeah. Amen. And we can heartily affirm that. And then again, remember the parable of the soils. There's many who seem to believe initially, but then later as the trials and troubles of this world, they fall away. And that certainly will occur here as well. So go through the parable of the soils and say, yeah, there's certain people who seem to be believers, but then later we realize that they yeah. were really never yeah. grounded on the word. Yeah. You know, so that will occur as well. So the point is, we're still left with the biblical categories of if it's a work of the Spirit, the person or work of Christ will be confessed, and then we rejoice. Yeah. But again, revival is the problem. As Bob mentioned, the only time revival is used is that of Israel being revived, being brought from death to life. Remember, Israel is the only nation that has a covenant. Okay, so they're going to be brought from death to life by being brought to faith in Jesus Christ, their Messiah, the one, as it says in Zechariah 12, 10, the one whom they'd pierced, yeah. they will finally believe in. So there, there have been periods when there have been more conversions than other times. It's not always linear. you know. Exactly, yeah, I would say that's true, absolutely. Um, th- what we have to affirm, though, is as Jesus said in Matthew 7, 
that ultimately when you look at the grand scheme of history from beginning to end, there's always going to be the wide path that leads to destruction and the narrow path that leads to eternal life. And so it's always the, the, excuse me, the minority report that comes to faith in Christ. It's always the majority report of those who reject him and teach other doctrine. So, yeah, that's the way I would look at it. So I just, it's kind of like uh, the term, sometimes we use terms uh, and we maybe not as precise as we want to be. I think revival is one where the church needs to really think about what we're saying. Um, again, I think conversion is a better, a better term. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway. Eric, with real, it, yeah, Dan, real quick, um, I heard about that Asbury University on Tucker Carlson. Yes, yes. And when I heard of that, I was, I, I was thinking, praise, you know, praise God for yeah. that. And the fact that they didn't send a crew down there, they didn't want them there. Right. I thought, wow, this is really, <clears throat> really good. I mean, it could be really good. Yeah. Um, and then I read an article by uh, something called the Cripplegate. It's a, a newsletter that comes through my email, and it's yeah. all about. Well, this article said. If Christ is being exalted, that's the test. And you guys have ta taught yeah. us that um, throughout the many weeks. Um, but I, I, I think of, um, you know, if, if that was a period where people were getting up and exalting Christ, that's what this nation needs. And it's, it's a wonderful thing if that's what was happening. But I don't know that. It does, doesn't sound like... It sounds like there was some false doctrine and things like that. I don't know for a fact, but... Uh. Amen. Well said. Um, Dan, would you mind with that? I think it's a great point, and we will know them by their fruit. Right. We'll be talking about it in Matthew 7. Ironically, we're called to judge the teachers and the prophets by their fruit, and we're going to define fruit as both their doctrine and their deeds. So what you teach and how you act. So in other words, we're saved by faith alone, but you always act on what you really believe. So let's say I say, that I believe this is a chair, but I'm never willing to sit in it. Maybe I don't really trust that that's a chair, that it'll hold me. Are you with me? That's sort of the idea. It's like the old, uh, many of you have heard the analogy where years ago there used to be people who would go over Niagara Falls. And I've told this story before, but apparently there was somebody who would go over with a wheelbarrow. They'd go over Niagara Falls on a uh, high wire. And they would yell out, how many believe I can go across the high wire with this wheelbarrow? And they'd always say, yes, we believe, we believe you can do it. And they'd chant and root them on. And then they would say, well, who wants to get in? And all of a sudden it's like, wow, I think I've got that roast in the oven. You know, everybody walks away. <laughs> the trust went away, right? That's the idea that we see in judging both doctrine and deed the fruit. They have the doctrine and they have the deed, and we'll judge that. Um, would you mind reading, uh, Dan, because you have your Bible open, could you turn to John 15, 26 and read that? And I want to talk about a very important um, Sunday school that Bob did some years ago on um, a work of the Spirit, where Bob, I think it was many weeks in a row, three weeks in a row, he showed that a true work of the Spirit from the Scriptures is the confession of the person and work of Christ. It's just from the Bible. So notice, the, what does the Spirit do when he comes? Could you read John 15, 26? Sure, 15, 26. When the Counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. He will testify about me. So the Spirit, when he comes, what will he do? He will testify. I think the Greek verb there, martureo, means to witness or to testify as a like a, uh, a discipling witness, he will testify 
of who Christ is and what he's done. So if you have a work of the Spirit, then you have to have the confession of the person and work of Christ. If you don't have that, well, we don't really know what you have. (laughs) All we know is it's not a work of the Spirit. If someone comes and confesses a different Christ, remember Paul warns in Galatians 1, a different Christ, a different spirit, a different gospel, right? Let him be an anathema, literally cursed of hell. So with that, I'm sorry, we're out of time, but what we'll do is we'll keep going down these decrees and I'll show you a bunch of ludicrous decrees. One thing I want you to think about is when we come back together next Sunday, I want you to think about what saving faith is. I'm going to talk about how both the New Apostolic Reformation movement and the Word of Faith movement, they use faith as a force. And so when they're making decrees, what they believe is that their pronouncing of words creates a new reality. And they will abuse certain texts in Scripture by saying, well, didn't God speak everything by his word into being? Well, remember, that's God. Okay? So what I'm going to lay out is that when it comes to the Bible, biblical faith has a valid object, which is the person and work of Christ. So when you and I speak, something will change in the world if someone understands what we say and they act on it. But my words in and of themselves are not a force that have being to them that start manipulating the cosmos as the word of faith teachers teach. Who Remember Ken Copeland said he could, te- he could actually speak storms in and out of existence? Um, We have the same thing here with Dutch Sheets and the New Apostolic Reformation Movement. So we're going to talk about what saving faith is and what our words do, uh, what they can do and what they can't do. So that's what we'll look at next time. Yes, Steve. I don't have a question. I want to pray for Bob for that book. I'm sorry. I, I want to pray for Bob with the book. That yes, he, he asked for yeah, prayer. Could you pray like, for us? I'll pray, yeah. pray. Yes, amen. Father, we thank you for this time together, Lord. We are glad that Eric is back. We praise you that he's on the recovery road and thankful for, for him and his teaching your word. And I just pray for Bob with this book. Yes. I pray, Lord, that you would give him, uh, quicken his mind, and he would rightly divide the word, your word, and that uh, the the... the I pray that he could gather all the facts and, and that this book would be compiled and that it would be printed. And um, I pray it would go out and it would change um, the attitude of the, the world and the church and that we could, we could um, more rightly understand the, what the church should look like. And we're thankful for him and his desire to make this happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Good to see you. Thanks. We'll see you upstairs. Yeah. All right, thanks, Bob.